Working for Crusoe, Friday, April 28th, 2023. Sam Park and John Ramey with you. Let's start with an update to what we covered last week and the um, civil strife near civil war in uh, Sudan. Um, Sam, you sent me a link earlier um, with a fascinating interview with uh, somebody on the ground in Khartoum. Um, yes, that was from Tuesday. Yeah, I was a local act- news hour. Yeah, local activist talking about um, how basically the international community has been relatively useless and the hundreds of thousands of people uh, without access to food, water, water, electricity, or medicine are essentially relying on uh, mutual aid at home, neighborhoods, helping neighborhoods, etc. Yes, and she was among the many citizen activists who had organized the mass street protests that helped topple the dictatorship of Omar al-Bashir four years ago. Uh, they had they, they mentioned on on uh, the interview segment that they had interviewed her back then. Uh, uh, and, and she was very critical of the international community's uh, kind of propping up these now two warring factions as part of yes. that process. And I should say that I think people such as her might have underestimated the difficulty of moving from a military dictatorship to a full-on democratic society without somehow cutting in the people with the guns, right? That This is just not an easy thing to do. It's failed in many different parts of the world many, many times in recent years. On the other hand, her disdain is completely justified uh, in many ways. And so, for instance, uh, as we were discussing last week, I think, uh, anyway, at the time that we were recording last week, the United States said that they were moving troops to the region in case they needed to evacuate the embassy, which they did over the weekend. And that's the only thing that bubbled this story up to the top of the news cycle, uh, or near the top anyway, uh, was Americans riding to the rescue of themselves, by the way. Uh, and after that was over, it basically fell back down and ho-hum, it's just a bunch of people in Africa having a crisis. Uh, and one thing that Muzin Al-Niri, who was the woman interviewed on right. the PBS NewsHour, said was, you know, by all means, evacuate your people. The, the fewer people in a war zone, the better. Uh, and by all means, put pressure on these feuding warlords to end the fighting. I believe she called them criminals. Yes, and with good reason. But she also said, you know, if you're going to be sending aircraft to evacuate people, maybe you want to put some humanitarian supplies on those aircraft before you send them. And I think this is just a little embarrassing, frankly, right? Because, you know, it took a couple days to organize and execute the evacuation of our 87 embassy personnel. And they were sent, as I surmised, from our base in Djibouti, which is Kind of far away, actually, but it's the closest one we have. That base has to have an infirmary. Uh, and there must be medical supplies in that infirmary. Now, this was a lightning operation. They just flew in and established a security perimeter, landed the transport helicopters, put the embassy personnel on them, and flew back out. It was very fast. 
And so all they could have done was drop a bunch of boxes onto the street and then leave, right? Uh, but that's better than doing nothing, which is what we've been doing so far. And I think this is relevant because we've discussed in previous episodes how the Biden administration at least seems to want to be seen to be aware that America needs to compete for geopolitical influence on the African continent because other world powers are contesting for that influence. And this is your shot, right? I mean, you could actually be seen to be doing something helpful. Now, if they just drop these boxes on the street, it's very possible that that paramilitary or... We'll just seize them, right. We'll just seize them, and they'll be the ones distributing the aid. But at least aid is showing up. And... And you can have a little made in the USA on it. Uh, exactly, right? Uh, and one thing that is different is that the State Department knows that people like Muzin al-Niri exist. They've certainly talked to them over the past few years. So you might, if PBS can get in touch with Muzin al-Niri, why can't the State Department and say, look, send some people to the embassy. We're going to be getting our people out, but we're going to drop some boxes of stuff onto the street. See if you can be the ones to get it. Uh, other African crises in other African countries haven't had networks of citizen organizers on the ground. This is what makes Sudan different from other African crises. And so this seems like a missed opportunity. I should say, however, that it's not too late. It's not like China and Russia are rushing to provide humanitarian aid to Sudan. Uh, it seems to me that there's a lot that could be done with drone aircraft, for instance, right? And again, which wasn't as common a phenomenon during previous African crises. So if you combine the, the possibility of using drone aircraft with the existing network of civilian activists on the ground, it's shocking to me that we're not trying to do this. Uh, and if we fail to do it, then what are we even talking about? Biden launched his re-election campaign a few days ago after the evacuation, and he kept talking about freedom and democracy. I know he's sincere about that. And to me, that, me that should mean freedom and democracy for everybody. And no, the actions you take to ensure freedom and democracy in Sudan are not the same ones that you use in Ukraine. They, are, they should be different, but you need to be seen to be doing something. And again, it's not too late. They could start to do this very soon, and I hope they will. And it's true. The most important thing that can happen is to end the fighting, uh, because without that, then uh, there's no hope for anybody. But we know that things are getting worse, for the most part, anyway. Eight different uh, agencies are warning that the humanitarian situation is uh, deteriorating. It's and, uh, catastrophic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We're talking about hundreds of thousands of refugees. One of the problems is that electricity is sporadic at best now. So we're seeing far fewer firsthand eyewitness accounts from on the ground in Sudan than we were a week ago. I should say, though, that even though the ceasefires have not actually ceased the firings, 
they do seem to have moderated the violence in some places temporarily. And they say they're trying to extend them, and it does seem to be working a little bit. And if that's true, then I would say it only makes it more important to try and arrange any sort of humanitarian relief. We're the country that spearheaded the Berlin airlift. Uh, and It would be on our greatest hits album. Exactly. Uh, and it's... Uh, if we're not, if we don't end up doing this, I you know, I don't know what we think we're even talking about. Well, today we're going to talk about Bidenomics. Yes. Uh, Joe, Joe Biden has announced his uh, intention to run again. Um, he announced it on Tuesday. Yes. And uh, you pointed out this is a, a fine time to review his economic policies of his first term, which have... Um, because of the hyperbolic nature of our culture war slash politics in this country, it's gone underreported in non-nerd circles just how um not radical, but but certainly um a, a paradigm shift in yes. in uh in thinking about economic policy. Uh a paradigm shift that involved the great consensus of both uh major political parties including Barack Obama, right? Yes. This is, um, and it's interesting. I was just, you know, you sent me the speech that Biden gave in front of the union folks on Tuesday after his video came out. He gave this speech. Yes. And he talks about, he, he details his investment in the American worker, right? And uh, my notes were that Biden has really kind of perfected this angry George Bailey kind of uh, stump. Sure, vibe. that's very astute, I would right. say. Right. Um, and also, like he and I also notice a little like uh, inside uh, baseball, for lack of a better term. Uh, this is not a sports analogy, but it is a sports broadcaster yeah, analogy. That, please go on. Uh, you know, he kind of trails off and then he says, what in Ukraine? Like he's got a he does the real dynamic uh, in a musical sense contrast. Sure. Um, and yeah, he sounds like a guy who's about 80 who's been in front of microphones a long time. I kind of recognize it. You know, Absolutely. Just, just yeah. from a craftsman. A ship point of uh, view, but I I was starting to think about you know we have discussed off this podcast why Biden perhaps less surprisingly than it ought to be seems well met with the moment, and I started to think about why um, the neoliberal consensus, which is globalism is good, free trade is good, why this is no longer the policy of the Democratic Party. And I started. Well, I wouldn't go quite that far, but they, the Democratic Party is well, moving away from it. Certainly, and, and Joe Biden is still in charge of the Democratic Party, and he's passed all this legislation. So, I just started thinking about it chronologically. Like, there have always been people who said globalism is bad, right? Bad for the American worker, right? Offshoring. Yes. So, in 2015, you have the rise of Trump and the MAGA movement, which is if nothing else, a reaction to the offshoring of previously middle-class income opportunities for non-college educated, mostly white uh, American voters, right? So that's 2015. So you have like a really loud, blustery political movement that is anti 
globalization, essentially. Yes, I would. And say, then and you would... have, and then you have a pandemic that shocks global supply chains, and then you have a war that further shocks global supply chains. Although maybe more on the energy side. Yeah, mainly in energy, but also. Food. So I was just trying to think how this got to the point where this is evidently pretty good politics for Biden. Well, one thing I would add is that it wasn't just Trump. For instance, Bernie Sanders was well, that, very yes. anti-globalist. Yes, right? and there was, was protectionism from both sides. Yes, he was an important force in the Democratic Party starting at the same time. And you'll recall also that uh, leading up to 20, the 2016 election, the Obama administration had spent years negotiating a free trade deal called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which Hillary Clinton the globe, supposed globalist even had to back away from uh, during that campaign. Clinton, so, Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton would be the uh, the vanguards of the uh, consensus, right? The uh, the neoliberal well, consensus. Among, uh, on the Democratic side, certainly. Sure. I mean, uh, uh, Bill as Clinton's, was Obama. Yes, Bill Clinton signed NAFTA into law, uh, and not he didn't do it reluctantly. He seemed to really embrace it, uh, and so that's why it's called the neoliberal consensus. Because it was, at least starting from the time of Bill Clinton, a bipartisan consensus until Bernie Sanders came along. So the oversimplification is it doesn't matter that your factory job guy in Ohio is going to go to China because the uh, resulting growth and wealth from this um, economic advantage by offshoring your job will essentially, to borrow a phrase, trickle down to the general welfare of the American economy, right? And, and in fact, that has happened for wealthy people, but it has not happened very much for workers. Well, it's just harder to see. Sure. All right. The, the uh, political narrative is that. For instance, in terms of economic value uh, in constant dollars, manufacturing output has never decreased in this country. No, but robots just do the work now. Correct. And, and to be fair, some, you know, a lot of the jobs have gone to other countries. It's just that other aspects of the economy have grown dramatically to take the place of those jobs. The problem is service jobs, which are mainly the ones that have, have been added to replace manufacturing jobs, don't pay as well. But they, they've been added in enormous numbers. Uh, and so... In that it's that's not trickle down actually that's adding jobs uh and and but it's just it's difficult to see that as a benefit for many people because the jobs don't pay as well if i had a union job at an auto plant and now i'm an uber driver that's a well, net loss exactly but at the same time if you're an uber driver you have the benefit of being able to work when you want sure. right and and not having to go to a horrifying factory job nine to five and you're just a drone uh there are benefits to some of these kinds of jobs that uh aren't monetary benefits but they do uh in some way make your lives better sure but that is not enough to convince joe biden to have uh, an aggressively protectionist is that the right word I economic policy he's certainly been accused of that and one thing i would say and just before we get into the details i mean we're talking about investment in american workers the like of which we haven't seen since great society or new deal 
I would I would I would agree with that. Although yeah. it's a different, the technological environment is so different now sure. that it's than the sixties or the thirties, right? Comparison, right? And at the risk of delving too far into domestic politics, uh, which we know, abstain from as a general rule. Yes, as a but we in this particular case we can't avoid talking about them completely. Uh, I don't know who it was who first formulated this description of Joe Biden, but whoever that person was, I would like to shake their hand. And the description is that Joe Biden's greatest political skill is to discern the ideological center point of the Democratic Party and position himself there. And during the half a century that Joe Biden has been a Washington politician, well, he right has there. seen that ideological center point move very dramatically twice. First, during the Reagan years, when it shifted to the right, ending with the presidency of Bill Clinton, who was certainly to the right of any previous presidential nominee of his party. And then again, back to the left with the rise of Bernie Sanders, as we've just discussed. And so Biden has moved along with that ideological center point very shrewdly, uh, while still seeming to maintain a consistent persona in some ways. Now, that's a political thing, and so I don't want to go too far into that. But the another thing I would say is that Biden is often criticized, or maybe not criticized, but people tend to see his age as a weakness. And I think in many ways that's apt. However, only someone as old and experienced in Washington as Joe Biden has the memory of, of repositioning himself in both of those ideological shifts of the party. You have to be that old to have done that twice as he has. And, and he remembers what the left-leaning Democratic Party of his youth was like in a way that younger politicians simply can't. And his economic policy is more like that than any other Democratic politician would probably understand or or think to put forth. Yeah, I would say, yeah, as we've said, since Linda Johnson. Yeah. Uh, and that's a long time. Now, we've been discussing the neoliberal consensus. And one thing that is certainly outside the neoliberal consensus is what economists often refer to as industrial policy that is supporting the growth and or development of specific industries and even down to the company level now biden hasn't gone quite that far but in a few very large pieces of legislation that he passed last year there are exorbitant tax subsidies for specific industries we talk about chips we talk about semiconductor construction there's that. There's the, the Chips and Science Act. And as a result of that, uh, TSMC, the world's largest semiconductor manufacturer, is opening a plant in Arizona. Uh, and just to... I mean, I focus on this one because it's explicitly protectionist. Yes. And, right. and there's... Semiconductors a do not need to be made anywhere but the United States or says Joe Biden, like, let's take that business back. We invented it. Let's build them here. Well, not take it all back, but at least the, the boost. The let's be in the game. Which, yeah, we're the ones providing it. TSMC is a Taiwanese company. 
you might think that since Taiwan sees itself as being in danger of invasion from China, they might want to hang on to their production capabilities just to ensure United States protection. I don't think that it's a coincidence that TMC announced their decision to build a factory here and then Joe Biden, in supposedly a gaffe, uh, said, yes, the United States will defend Taiwan in the case of a Chinese invasion. I don't think this is a gaffe at all. Right? No. I think this is a, a very clear geopolitical quid pro quo. I should also say that's another one of Biden's, like, whatever you think of him politically, like uh, his ability to kind of say something. He wink, wink. I'm not supposed to say that. Like him saying hell to heck or damn to darn a couple times during that speech on Tuesday. I'm like, Oh, it's like, oops, sorry. I'm not supposed to say that, but Hey, I'm a real guy. And I have a, I work blue. You know, I I use dirty words too. Absolutely. He does it all the time. It's pretty funny. That's one of his least well understood political skills. Yeah. Gaff. uh, I would say, right. Yeah. The the non gaff. So that's the, there was the chips and science act. There was also the infrastructure act. Uh, which has by American aspects of it. And you'll notice that Biden talked a lot about that in front of the union crowd, as you might expect, right? The I mean, that's, of- ex- that's explicit. Construction materials for all federally funded projects have to all be made in the United States. Yeah. Now, I think that there's that's a percentage play, actually. Well, yeah, but he was bragging that the percentage is much higher than it had been. Exactly, right? I don't think all the iron ore for all the steel has to be dug out of United States mines, for instance, right? I think the steel probably has to be made here. Right. Uh, but we're talking about a piece of legislation that's like $250 billion. Yes, exactly. And, you know, there's the old joke, you know, a billion here, a billion there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money. This is an <laughs> enormous amount of money. Uh, let's just talk about that. The The relief package from COVID-19, nearly $2 trillion. That includes yes, that's, that's, the expanded child tax credit that has gone away. Yes. Right. We're talking about $250 billion, right, for infrastructure and job. CHIPS is another $200 billion plus. Yes. And then the Inflation Reduction Act. Oh, I had the number right here. It's in the hundreds of billions. I don't hundreds know of billions. Just so we know, billions. It took $20 billion in 1960s money to go to the moon. Yes. Right? Okay. So let's say that takes $200 billion. Now, we are talking about moonshot level investments on Probably multiple more, fronts but yeah the, the, at but any rate it's it's, 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 it's staggering amount, of amounts of money it's yeah. so much money and uh but it's working for instance just last week uh a norwegian company called frere which is spelled f-r-e-y-r uh they're a battery battery manufacturer right which will need for electric car uh construction they announced that they're going to be building a factory just outside of Atlanta. What do you know? That's a swing state in Georgia, right? Uh, and so, and there's been many companies that have announced similar measures, right, to open manufacturing facilities here in the United States. And now, in some ways, however, the Buy American aspect of this 
can kind of work at cross purposes. In other words, it seems like more of a political policy than an economic policy. And I think one of the best examples of this is the push towards electric vehicles. Uh, as you'll recall, last year, I think it was, or perhaps earlier this year, whenever uh, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, was visiting Biden in Washington, he complained to Biden yes. about the Buy American aspects of the Inflation Reduction Act, especially in regards to electric vehicles. Because, again, a certain percentage of the content of these vehicles needs to be made in America. And economists would say that this is a bad idea, a bad way of stimulating the number of electric vehicles in this country. What you should do instead is allow electric vehicles to be made anywhere and sold in the United States. That That is, they have to be made in, largely made in America to qualify for the tax breaks. Economists would say you should extend, extend those same tax deductions for consumers of electric vehicles to any electric vehicle. That way, there are more electric vehicles being sold in the United States and the price comes down for consumers. Uh, it's... An, you know, what economists consider an iron law of economics, I would say there's no such thing, but they would say more competition lowers prices. Uh, and I think that is true. And so if your goal is to move the country towards electric vehicles, the Buy American aspects of the Inflation Reduction Act are work at cross purposes to that goal. And they seem like more of a vote getting measure than an actual economic economic sure. policy, yeah. right? But the thing is, it's an economic policy in the sense that it helps American workers. And that's what me moving away from the neoliberal consensus means, right? It's like, look, we want us to be the leading manufacturer of these vehicles. So we want our companies to be doing it. Uh, and in fact, uh, European countries do this sort of thing all the time, right? It's just that they're smaller countries uh, and they can't dole out the same amount of tax break largesse uh, individually. They would have to coordinate it across the European Union, which is a very difficult thing to do just politically for them. They, I think they'll probably give it a shot, though. I know the... Experts, the egg brains, the economists would say that inflation in the United States is not particularly correlated to this explosion of federal spending. But you can see how that's kind of misunderstood in the I would say of rank and file people. It depends on the specific piece of legislation. For example, as you may recall, back in 2021, uh, the former Clinton administration official Larry Summers who I think was he was Treasury Secretary and before that he was you know Deputy Tre Treasury Secretary or something or worked for the Fed I don't remember but he's a noted economist on the Democratic political side and he criticized the Stimulus Act that is the American Rescue Plan uh, the fourteen hundred dollar checks to every person and then the expanded child tax credit exactly and he said this is inflationary this will make inflation worse and he seems to have been right what. 
seemed to have gone unnoticed was he spoke favorably in these terms about the Build Back Better plan, as it was then known, and was later scaled back to become the Inflation Reduction Act. He said that the measures involved in that over the long term would be broadly disinflationary. And he had various reasons for saying so, and he had gone into the details of it. For instance, uh, if more people are driving electric cars, then that reduces energy prices for at least for fossil fuels. Uh, And so because it cuts into demand. Exactly. Right. And so and there were a number of other aspects of this that that he thought would be broadly disinflationary. And in fact, it was said that consulting with Larry Summers was one of the reasons that West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin was persuaded to sign on to a scaled back version of Build Back Better, which we now know as as the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, One other note about the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which was passed in last August. Uh, The bottom 80% of tax filers by income would receive a net benefit from it. And it's going to be totally paid by an increase in corporate taxes uh, over time. Over now, time. I mean, again, that's what the CBO says, the Congressional Budget Office, which is nonpartisan. I mean, that's a whale of a piece of accounting to spend hundreds of billions of dollars, have it be a net benefit for the bottom 80%, and have it funded totally by corporate tax increases. Yes, and that's one of the reasons I think that it's remo- again, I'm not trying to sound like a shill. I'm, we're not campaigning for Joe Biden here. I'm just like, if, if that's what the CBO says is the case, that's a neat piece of legislation. Yeah, but a, a problem here is just that if, you know, if any of our listeners have chronic trouble sleeping, buy an oh. economics textbook. All right. I mean, you'll, they'll <laughs> fix that right up for you. Or just read the wiki on Joe Biden's economics exactly. policy. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's eye-crossing. Uh, and so... Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why this is g- gone sort of underreported. It's just like you can't, you know, it's difficult to even get your mind around these things. Uh, and I think that's a problem with economics generally. Another problem is that what we call the neoliberal consensus is actually has only really ever been a consensus amongst economists. That's the only real constituency for these policies. And maybe the wealthy people whose wealth was enhanced by globalization sure uh but most people don't care because they don't understand these things right. but a good example of this is that economists for many years have said if you want to fix climate change then the best way of doing this is to implement what they called a carbon, carbon tax, tax right uh and just levy a tax on every ton of carbon uh, increase it over time, and this will help carbon-free energy alternatives it incentivizes more it, competitive, yeah. right? And you can understand that. But guess what? Especially here in the United States, we don't like taxes, right? And a carbon tax is, guess what? A regressive tax, right? If every gallon of gas, every a minute of heating your home or air conditioning your home. Or mile I drive as an independent gardener trying to hustle. 
Yeah, I mean, if these things suddenly become more expensive while you're waiting for uh, for carbon-free alternatives to them to be generated by the market, you're not going to be happy about that. And one political party in this country has spent generations saying taxes equals bad. You do not want taxes, and many people honestly do believe that. When the IMF tells poor countries that they need to end energy subsidies, which is would be a great idea if you're an economist, when they actually go about doing this, there are riots. Sure. Be, because, yeah, it's true. Energy subsidies broadly benefit the rich, right? Uh, that is, most of the benefit goes to rich people uh, who own the biggest cars, etc., right? But getting rid of them disproportionately harms the poor. And Economists don't seem to understand this, and I, it's it's sort of baffling to me that they don't. But then again, economists, econ, I'm sorry, economics is a specialized academic endeavor. They're not supposed to understand other things any more than molecular biologists are supposed to understand economics. Uh, and so in that sense, it really shouldn't seem to be uh, all that surprising. Maybe we should just have anybody who wants an economics degree or to work in the field should have to be like an Uber driver just to understand basic kind of market realities or on, on you know, an what, individual level. A or supermarket maybe, employee. Uh, sure, exactly. Uh, well, or a guitarist. I read a uh, fascinating article in The Economist magazine uh, a number which of is pro free trade yes for 200 they, years they have said for many years that more needs to be done to compensate people who suffer as a result of free trade so there they are champions of the neoliberal consensus and always have been but they do they show, don't think it's perfect they've never thought it's perfect yeah they, they do show some understanding that it needs to be seen to be providing for everybody if it's going to remain a consensus and they've said this many times. And there was an article in in their uh, economics focus column, which said that if we just focus on climate change, for example, as an economic problem, we might be making a category mistake. If climate change is actually an existential threat to humanity, which I believe it is, and I think that there is a growing real consensus that that is the case, then taxes and economic policies probably may, might not be the best way of addressing climate change. It almost change. trivializes it. Exactly, right? And the memorable line, which I'll paraphrase here, was Hitler wasn't defeated with a fascism tax. And I think that's one of the best ways of looking at this that I've seen in many years. And so, again, that's where uh, even a few years ago when this article was published, The Economist had gone that far in understanding that, okay, maybe this shouldn't just be addressed as an eco a strictly economic problem, to their credit. What other things should we understand about Bidenomics other than it's big, it's a complete change from the neoliberal consensus, and it's well, fairly, and it's a reaction, or if it's not a reaction, it certainly is in the same arc of both Bernie Sanders movement and MAGA rhetoric. Yes, and I would say it economically, is, it is uh, 
a way of looking at climate change in these sorts of terms as more than an economic problem. In other words, okay, fine, maybe it's protectionist, but we need to end climate change. And that is an enormous problem. And I would say, for instance, things like the pandemic and the war in Ukraine have distracted our attention from what should be the most important issue facing all of humanity which is climate change. And I also want to point out specifically the Inflation Reduction Act is the most centered on um, climate change. Sure. The Chips uh, and Science Act doesn't right. really have anything to do with it, right? right? Uh, the Infrastructure Act sort of does. Somewhat. Right? There's, there's a lot of green aspects yeah. of that. But the other thing I would say about all of these pieces of legislation is that some of them might be in danger due to the impending negotiations over the debt ceiling. I hope not, but it's certainly possible. That's ex exactly what Republicans in the House are calling for. They want to their... extract concessions from these big yeah, they, programs. Yeah, they want some of the, the uh, portions of the Inflation Reduction Act repealed. Uh, and I hope that won't happen, but it's certainly a danger. And so we'll have to look out for that in future episodes when we discuss the debt ceiling. Well, since we're starting to get uh, engagement on this podcast, uh, a new wave of engagement, um, you can email us, johnramymedia at gmail.com if you have a question, a comment, or maybe a topic you'd like us to explore. johnramymedia at gmail.com. Anything else you need to get to, Sam? No, I think that'll just about cover it. All right. Namaste. We'll see you all next week.